All right, everyone. So in case you have been keeping count, tonight is message number 23 in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Galatians. We started this on August the 1st of 2021. We're a little over halfway through. At our current pace, we are probably going to finish this up maybe about two weeks right after the rapture of the church. So, and by the way, if that happens, I'm okay with that too. We'll let Jesus teach the rest on the other side. So anyway, while I love taking our time and digging into the different truths of God's word and getting into doctrine and biblical themes and working through confusing points within scripture as well as finding key points of application, while I love every part of that, I also know that sometimes if you go too slow, you can miss the big picture along the way. And I want to make sure that we don't miss the forest for the trees in this. So I'm going to take just a few moments, and we're going to reset everything within the book of Galatians so that once again, we're back on track. This is what it's looking like. Here's where we're at, and here's how our text for this evening begins to apply. So as we get into this particular part, just know the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia. He wrote it to fend off vigorous attacks against the gospel that were taking place. If you'll remember, the Apostle Paul was the one who actually planted the church here in the region of Galatia. He established it in truth. But whenever he left, there was a group that infiltrated the church known as the Judaizers. And when the Judaizers came in, they shared different heretical teachings. Now, when they got in, they taught a hybrid faith, so to speak. That is, it was a mixture of Judaism as well as Christianity. The result was a belief system that was neither inherently Jewish nor was it authentically Christian. They taught that for a person to be right with God, they needed to have faith in Jesus plus adherence to the Mosaic law. And the reason that was so confusing is it sounded right. In fact, at that time, and even to this particular point, if you were to look out at the major religions around the world and say, what's the basic paradigm they're presenting? It is belief plus behavior. Here's the things you need to believe. These are the actions you need to do in order to be right with God or the gods or the universe. So whenever the Judaizers came in with this blend of faith in Jesus plus obedience to the Mosaic law, it sounded reasonable. It sounded like what we should pursue as we are pursuing God. Now, here's the thing. In Christianity, there is a faith and there is a works component. The difference is our works flow out of a right relationship with God. They do not establish a right relationship with God. Christianity is completely different than every other major world religion. It teaches that a person is justified by God, made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. It's Christ and Christ alone. Now, when a person has been justified by faith, it will be manifested in actions. That is, the Spirit of God begins to live out the truths of God's Word in the life of that individual. But how the person is made right with God is justification by faith in Christ alone. So Jesus shifted the emphasis away from what we could consider to be responsibility of humans and placed it upon his finished work. 
Now, here's basically the story, and I try my best to give the gospel as much as I can, as clearly as I can, as often as I can. Because remember, you and I never outgrow the gospel, we grow into the gospel. The more you understand the gospel, the more you understand how to walk out your faith. So here's the gospel story once again. Humanity created for a relationship with God. Our sin separated us from that relationship. Nothing we could ever do on our own to make things right. Jesus did for us what we could not do. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead three days later that we might have life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship. Here it is, justified by God to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. That's the good news. Now, the Judaizers were basically packaging old religious ideas and tacking Jesus' name to the other side of it. If Paul did not write this letter, the teachings of the Judaizers would spread through that region. If he did not write this letter to correct false doctrine, it will now be something that goes to the next generation who's coming into the church as well. That's why the book of Galatians is so important. So here's the basic breakdown of the book. I believe this is in your notes. There's three major sections in the book. That is, in chapters 1 and 2, the gospel of grace is defended. In chapters 3 and 4, the gospel of grace is explained. And then in chapters 5 and 6, the gospel of grace is applied. So today we're actually finishing up the second section right there where the gospel of grace is explained. Now, let me tell you from the very beginning how this is going to play out. The apostle Paul is about to present a final argument of why it is that the covenant of grace is greater than the covenant of law. And when he gets into this final argument, here's what he basically does. He puts the line in the sand. He says, you're either going to be on this side or you're going to be on this side. You're either going to pursue Jesus by faith in what he has done or you're going to try to pursue him by works. But what he's going to make clear here is you cannot do both. It's faith in Christ by pursuing him or you're going to attempt a man-made religion that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the time we finish this particular chapter, he's going to make it clear. It's one side or the other. So I invite you at this time, go with me in your Bibles, if you would. Galatians chapter number 4 will be in verses 21 through 31. I'm speaking this evening on the subject, one or the other. Now, as you're finding your place in the text, let me also say this. Tonight is going to be dramatically different than how I most of the time approach a text. Most of the time we're going to set it up, we're going to read the text, then I'll go through, do a little bit of a bridge, and we just jump right into the verses and start working our way down. This final argument that he's about to give is unbelievably complex. Here's what we're going to do that's going to be a little different. We're going to have prayer, and then I'm going to share the story that leads into this. And I'm going to encourage you, do everything you possibly can do tonight not to read ahead yet. 
I know that sounds strange for me to say, don't read ahead. And here's the reason. If you read ahead, you're going to be reading and you're going to miss what I'm saying on the front side. And when I get to the point of explaining that, you'll be lost on both parts. So I promise if you listen to what we're going to set up through the story on the front side, when we read it, all of a sudden you'll think, oh my goodness, I see that now. I see that now. I see that but there's a lot that he is building into this final argument. It is one of the most incredibly complex and yet beautiful descriptions of how the gospel of Jesus Christ is exactly what he wants us to live. So let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that as we get into your word, may your spirit guide us in truth. God, help us not to miss a single part of what you want us to experience. Lord, I pray that as followers of Christ that we never get to a place where we're just willing to be content with our understanding of what you've done. But Lord, may we always desire to know more, to understand deeper. And God, lead us into deeper waters of faith with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So here's the story that is being mentioned here. The story of Galatians 4 that we're going to be reading in about 15 minutes from now, it's actually one that starts back over in Genesis 15. And I've already shared parts of that in some of the preceding sections that got us to this particular point. But here's your refresher on that once again. Way back over in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham in a vision, and he promises him three things, the land, the seed, and the blessing. The land, the seed, and the blessing. God will give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. God will give Abraham a son, and through his son, Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And also, God will protect and bless him, bless his future, bless his home, and bless the world through Abraham. That's what God promises to Abraham. Now, all of that sounds great. As Christians, we love to hold on to a promise of God. We love it when God is saying, I'm going to bless you. It's like those are the verses we highlight, we underline, we tweet out to other people. We send them to people in a text when they're down. Like we love a promise from God. But here's the first thing I want you to see about that tonight. God's promises are often on the other side of obstacles. When he gives you a promise... Just know, it's not smooth sailing usually between God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise. I have never met a Christian yet who has said, everything in my life works exactly like I hoped it would. I've never met a Christian yet who says, my life has no struggles. It's easy for me to follow God. There's no hassles. There's no problems. I've not met that believer yet. But I've met a lot of believers who will say, I feel like I'm fighting hell by the acre. There's a lot of believers that they'll say, I'm holding on to a promise from God, and yet I'm watching everything go in the opposite direction. There's a lot of believers that you run into that their statement is that of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. For a believer to walk with Christ, it's a walk of faith. Now, God gives incredible promises, but don't think those promises come without their own set of challenges and obstacles. So we know that God is completely sovereign. We know God 
can give us everything that he has promised in a split second. And because we know that and things take time, it's often confusing. Our question is why? God, why are you taking so long? God, don't you see my pain? Don't you see what we're going through? God, why are you not stepping in? Why are you not intervening at this particular point? But listen, the process, the process is where God is doing something in our heart that would never happen any other way. Listen to this. It's in the process. It's in the trials that he shifts our affections away from the promises in his hand to the hand that's promising. He's shifting our focus away from something and he's getting our eyes locked on him. He wants it to be that we get to a place we desire him more than anything that he could ever give. It needs to be at a place that in our minds we recognize if we had every single promise of God in our hand right now and still don't know him deeply, it's still not going to satisfy. That The goal is him. Only God alone can satisfy. So now let's break that back down with Abraham's story. In Abraham's story, the obstacles are massive. Take the land, for example. God promised Abraham the land of Canaan. Abraham got the memo. Do you know who did not get the, the memo? The people who were living in the land of Canaan. So whenever his descendants show up in the land, they arrive and they discover fortified cities, people who look like giants, and not any of them are willing to just simply hand over their land and say, we've been waiting for you to come. Here it is. There were obstacles between Abraham and the fulfilled promises of God. Also, God promised Abraham the blessing. Man, we love the blessings of God. But listen, even being blessed by God, if you read the story of Abraham, you'll find half of Abraham's family was robbed and kidnapped. He was forced to assemble a posse to get back what he owned. His nephew's herdsmen were at odds with his herdsmen. It led to a rift within their family. His nephew takes the best land and goes and settles right outside of Sodom. I don't know if you know this or not. Sodom was not a bastion of righteousness. There is obstacles between Abraham and the fulfilled promises of God. Now here's the big one. This is the promise that we're going to be dealing with in this text. It was the seed. God promised Abraham the seed. Promised that he was going to give him a son. And from this son, the world would be blessed. His descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. That's the promise that we're going to be studying because here's the story of what went on. And Paul is using that particular story in order to describe the covenant of grace as well as a covenant of law. So here's what happens there. God promised a son, but in typical God fashion, he did not give that promise to a 20-year-old stallion and his 19-year-old blushing bride. That's not how God rolls. He gave it to a 75-year-old man and his 65-year-old barren wife. 
there's going to be some obstacles to overcome. After 10 years of trying to have a child and not getting pregnant, Sarah decided to take matters into her own hands. She, listen, she decided she can speed up the process. Let's just stop the truck right there for just a moment. Here's a good word. Do not allow impatience to compound your problems. God does not need our help. God has never been desperate. God has never been broke. God has never been worked into a corner. He spoke the world into existence by the power of his word, and he reigns under the auspices of his own authority. God can handle anything that's going on in this world right now. There's a lot of heartache that comes into people's lives because of impatience. So in this particular section, we're about to learn a valuable lesson on walking patiently with God. Now, I know patience is not the strong suit of humanity. It's definitely not my strong suit. I, I like everything now. Like, microwaves are awesome. Like, you can put something in, a couple seconds later, you take that joker right out, you're ready to eat. I like things fast. And yet, God doesn't necessarily work that way. So what happens if you have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for years on a promise from God. What do you do? Wait longer. That's not very encouraging, is it? Here's what happens when you don't wait longer. Sarah did not wait. And instead, she offered her servant, Hagar, to Abraham so that he could have a child through her. Now, this, this is one of those moments where you have to pause for just a second and think of what just happened there. Abraham, at this particular point, is 86 years old when he has his first son, a young guy by the name of Ishmael. Here's the reason we need to pause. Desperation and impatience will lead you to make decisions you would not normally make. No wife who is thinking clearly would send her husband to sleep with another man, hoping the other woman's going to get pregnant so that she could raise the child from the other woman. When you say it out loud, it's more shocking than when you just kind of read it in the story. Like, that's not someone who's thinking clearly in that moment. But there are smart, godly, sincere people who are going to make poor choices because of impatience. Wait on God, wait on God, wait on God. So years later, when Abraham is 99 years old and Sarah was 89 years old, God reiterates his promise to them. He promises them a child again. And in God's way and in God's timing, Sarah gets pregnant. She gives birth to a son. The son's name is Isaac. At this point, Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. So let's hit the pause button again. This is going to be key when we're about to get into the text, and we're going to read it because Paul's going to mention this comparison in just a moment. That is, historically, rabbis would teach that the Word of God has four different meanings. The, the first of those was pishet. That is the simple or literal 
meaning. The second was remez, that is the suggested meaning. The third was dirush, which is the meaning deduced by investigation. And the fourth was sod, that was the allegorical meaning. The first letter of each of those different words, P, R, D, S, were the consonants in the word paradise. It was believed that when a rabbi understood all four meanings, they now had reached the joy of paradise. The highest of those meanings, according to the rabbis, was the last one, the allegorical meaning. That is an allegory, in case you're wondering, it's simply something. Maybe it's a story, it's a poem, it's a picture that can be interpreted and revealed to have a hidden meaning behind it. Now, if you'll remember, the Apostle Paul was steeped in Jewish tradition. He was, he was trained under Rabbi Gamaliel, according to Acts 22, verse 3. He was addressing a group that was steeped in Jewish customs. Now, he's already given seven different arguments or lines of reasoning as to why the covenant of grace is greater than the covenant of law. But his final line of reasoning here is going to be that he climbs the allegorical summit, suggesting there's no greater argument for grace over the law than the allegory of Abraham's two sons. Now, you got to listen to the pieces we're about to put together. And, and believe me, if you're listening in a few moments when we read it, you'll say, that's what he was talking about. That's where that came from. Okay, Hagar in this story represents the old covenant of law, which was made on Mount Sinai and is experienced in present Jerusalem. Hagar was a slave, which meant all of her children would be born into slavery. By Hagar representing the law, it showed that everyone who was born under the law would be enslaved to the law. Hagar's son, Ishmael, was born as a result of human instincts. It was man's best effort to solve an impossible problem, the barren womb. Allegorically, Hagar represents the law, and the law's son is legalism in this. Legalism is the result of human instinct. It's man's best effort to solve an impossible problem, being separated from God because of our sin. Now let's go to the other woman in the equation. Sarah represents the new covenant of grace, which was made on Mount Zion and is experienced in the heavenly Jerusalem. These words are going to pop out of the text in a moment. Sarah was a free woman. Therefore, all of her descendants are going to be born into freedom. By Sarah representing the covenant of grace, it shows that everyone who is born again by grace through faith is born free. Sarah's son is Isaac. He was the result of God's promise. He was God's solution to an impossible problem, the barren womb. Allegorically, Sarah represents grace, and grace's son is justification by faith. Justification by faith is the result of divine providence. It is God's solution for an impossible situation, being separated from God because of our sin. That's the comparison that we're about to walk into. So now that you know the story, now that you know the connections, now that you see the purpose of where allegory is going to fit into this, 
I want us now to read the first verse. Read verse 21 of chapter 4. Here's what it says. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Let's just stop right there for a moment. When people speak of living according to the law, you'll often notice they do not bring up the punishment that came under the law. They like structure. They don't necessarily bring up punishment. The law, as we understand, based on Scripture, there are some difficult, horrific scenes, scary scenes as the law of God is being given. If you've not read that recently, let me give you just a couple of snapshots from over in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 21. This is when God called Moses to the mountain to give him the law, and here's some clips from that scene. It was, when it was morning, there were thunder and lightning, flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet so that all the people who were at the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the whole mountain quickly or quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountains. The Lord called to Moses the top of the mountains and Moses went up. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they will not break through to the Lord to gaze. And many of them perish. Here's what it says in the next chapter, Exodus 20 verse 19. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. He says, did you not hear about the law? All of you who want to live under the law, did you not hear about the law, what it was like for those who were there when the law was given? We cannot wrap our minds around the holiness of God. We can't even fathom how high his righteousness is above our righteousness. We cannot even get our minds around how depraved we are before a holy and sovereign God. And he's saying, those of you who want to live under the law, did you listen to it? Have you read it? Do you understand how, how hard and how difficult and how scary it was for people who were there at that moment. Apart from Christ, we are lost sinners with no capacity whatsoever to live according to the standards of God. So in verse 21, Paul is saying, for those of you who want to be under the law, have you listened to it? It is not a cozy concept that you kind of snuggle up with in front of a, a, a fireplace. This is a terrifying description of the holiness of God and a recognition of our inadequacy. From there, he proceeds to describe the difference between law and grace through the story of Abraham's sons. So for just a moment, let's continue reading at what it says, verses 22 through 31. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. 
This is allegorically speaking. Are you seeing the connection to what we're talking about before? This is allegorically speaking. These women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at the time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Listen, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. Are you seeing how beautifully he lays out these two covenants. He lays it out between the two sons. He lays it out between both of the women, Hagar and Sarah. Through allegory, Paul presents two sons from two different women, born by two different means, representing two different covenants and resulting in two different lives. Here they are side by side. Ishmael is born by natural means. Isaac was born by supernatural means. Ishmael represents human works, man's best effort. Isaac represents God's work, divine action. Ishmael is the son of the flesh. Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was born to a slave woman. Isaac was born to a free woman. Ishmael had no rights to the inheritance. Isaac had rights to the inheritance. Ishmael represents law and slavery. Isaac represents grace and freedom. Ishmael represents lostness and separation. Isaac represents salvation and relationship. All of this information is now crescendoing into Paul's question in verse number 30. But what does the scripture say? Here it is. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Oh, listen, this is so good. Abraham could not keep both the son of Hagar and the son of Sarah. He had to choose. Paul saying the same thing. You and I cannot embrace both the law and grace. We're going to have to choose. We either place faith in Jesus that he alone will justify us before God, or we are trying to place our faith and our ability to live up to God's holy, perfect, righteous standard. That's what he's saying. The, 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 the clear division is here. It's one or the other. At the end of the day, we cannot embrace both. It's either faith or it's works. It's either our best efforts or it's Christ's righteousness. It's either law or it's grace. 
And if you happen to be teetering on the edge, you're like, I'm not quite sure which way I need to go. Listen to what Jesus says. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why Jesus came. We could not live up to the righteous standard of God. That's why he came. That's why the gospel is so important. It's so glorious for us to see. That's why the gospel is good news regardless of where you preach it. And by the way, if the gospel is not true wherever you preach it, you're not preaching the true gospel. The gospel should be one that you could go to the slums of Bangladesh and you could be able to say there's a God who created you for relationship with him. Our sins separated us from that relationship. Nothing you could do to make things right yourself. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. God loved you so much he sent his son to die in your place. That son paid your sin debt, rose from the dead that you might have life. And now if you repent of your sin, by placing faith in Jesus, he will give you reconciled relationship with God. You can step into your created purpose. It's not about if you follow him, he's going to give you money today. That's a false gospel. It's the fact that when you follow him, he sets you free. He forgives you. He gives you eternal life. He gives you reconciled relationship. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul gets to this point, he's saying, I'm just going to put the line in the sand. You can no longer have a foot on both sides of this. It either has to be, you're going to be a person walking in grace because of faith in Christ, or you're going to be a person who is trying to do it yourself. And if that's the case, you're not following Jesus because he doesn't offer a plan B. I'm going to tell you, I've told you all from the beginning, I only have one message. It's intimate, reconciled relationship with God. We just keep repackaging it over and over again because, listen, that's the story right here. It's the truth that sets people free. So because of that, look at what he says now in verse 31. So then, brethren... We are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Oh, keep reading. Go on. I'll give you liberty. Let's just go on over into chapter 5. This is good. See what it says. See what it says. Here's where he starts now in chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise God for the freedom that we have in Christ. So what's the takeaway that people might have from tonight's message? There's so many pieces that might hit people at a different point, but here's just a couple of those. It might be a truth out of Abraham's story. It might be for some of you, you need to remember, God's promises are often on the other side of obstacles. It might be that you need to remember that you're not to allow impatience to compound your problems. It might be that somebody tonight just needs to be reminded desperation and impatience will lead you to make decisions you would never otherwise 
make. Wait on God. Somebody might need to be reminded tonight, be careful about trying to do in the flesh what only God can do in the spirit. For some of you, it may be a good reminder tonight that even through the trials, even through the waiting, even through the problems, God is shifting our affections from the promises in his hand to the hand that is promising. He wants us to want him more than anything else. For someone else, you might need to make a choice tonight. It might be that you've tried to blend these two together and you're just frustrated. The decision here is pretty clear when it's laid out in front of us. There's only one path. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. And here's what it tells us in Colossians. How you came into the faith is how you run the race. How you've been saved is how you walk in him. How are we saved? By grace through faith. How do we pursue him? By grace through faith. That's what I'm saying. It's not us doing it for God. It's God doing it through us. It is us coming to God and saying, God, I can't. You can through me. I was unable to save myself. I'm going to be unable to sanctify myself. I'm trusting that you are the one who saved me, and you're also the one going to sanctify me by grace through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the fact that you, you understand our hearts. You understand our weaknesses. And God, your word is so unbelievably clear to help us know how it is that we can walk in freedom. And you say in your word, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. God, may we walk in freedom. Not to indulge flesh. You, you speak in your word about that. But Lord, may we walk in freedom recognizing there is nothing that we could do to make you love us more and there's nothing that we could do to make you love us less. We are completely safe in the hands of you. God, we love you. We thank you. May you live freedom through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great night. See you all this next week.